Raise your hand if you were not here last night. <laughs> All right, so there's about 15 people here right now who were not here last night. So Mike Abendroth, pastor from the Massachusetts, uh, about an hour outside of Boston, um, friend, pastor, professor, friend of mine, um, he and he and John Benzinger hop on monthly coaching calls with me just to talk about church issues and how to think about things and what what what's my job as a pastor, what should I do or not do, and all kinds of things. So he's been an incredible help and encouragement to me um, for for a few years now, um, and he is coming to preach for us. So you can come on up now. Um, I asked him specifically to to preach about Christ. So don't take his preaching about Christ to, to mean that he is disinterested in the things that the other people are saying, but they have their niches and he's got his, and I think it all goes together quite nicely. Um, I've got a compliment for you, but I'll save it for the end because I don't want you to get a big head. <laughs> don't forget, I almost died. You know, he almost died. <laughs> he, I'll tell it for you. So he had COVID and then he got pneumonia and then he almost died. And uh, he, he thought he was going to die. You know what? I should have died, went to heaven, and came, back. came back, wrote a book about it. <laughs> that was kind of the economic sin of Lazarus, was it not? Uh, before I start, uh, thank you, Pastor, for those words. Uh, I don't know if you know this, dear congregation, but there are some speakers that don't go to churches that uh, have 50 people for a conference. They need to have 500 people. They need to have green M&Ms in their room. They need to have an entourage. And I just think, why would eight speakers come for a small conference like this for a tiny little church? And the answer is, of course, we don't care about the numbers. That's the Lord's business, right? We want to take care, as one man said, of the depth of our ministry, and the Lord will take care of the breadth. And so I'm just encouraged, right? We get together and we get to hear the truths from the Word of God, and it doesn't matter how many people are here. And John and I love to help your pastor, and that's the other reason we're here, not for just the glory of God, but we want to help uh, Andy because we know he'll stand here and preach the Bible verse by verse in a Christ-centered way, no matter what. How much is that worth? Some people travel from different boroughs to get here, I would imagine, right? So anyway, thank you for that. And Daryl is gone, and so is Virgil, but I'm not a person of color. I feel so, I mean, isn't pasty white a color? I just never understood that. I love reading missionary stories, and one of my favorite missionaries is John Payton. And he was a missionary to the New Hebrides Islands. And when he got there, uh, there were nothing but cannibals. And he wrote this in his autobiography. For the first time, the Dorcas Street Sabbath School teacher's gift from South Melbourne Presbyterian Church, Scotland, was put to use. A new communion service of silver. They gave it in faith that one day we would require it. And in such, we received it. And now the day had come and gone. For three years we had toiled and prayed and taught for this. 
At the moment when I put the bread and wine into those hands, once stained with the blood of cannibalism and now stretched out to receive and partake the emblems and seals of the Redeemer's love, John Payton, the missionary, said, I had a foretaste of the joy of glory that well nigh broke my heart to pieces. I shall never taste a deeper bliss till I gaze on the glorified face of Jesus himself. How did that happen? From cannibals to the Lord's Supper. Was it a method that transformed that island? Was it 40 days of purpose? Was it Peyton's ingenuity? Was it a special evangelistic program? When I was in college, I studied marketing, and I remember still to this day the four P's of marketing, right? Product, place, price, and what? I guess you didn't go to University of Nebraska now, did you? Uh, Product, place, price, and promotion. I almost forgot it myself. (laughs) It was the message that transformed that island. It had nothing to do with the methods. It was the message. It wasn't a social gospel issue. It wasn't Peyton coming there and saying, I'm a Scottish man and I'm white and I've had all this white privilege and therefore, how do I come to this cannibal place? So today, as Pastor Andy has asked me to do, and I'm glad to do it, I want to remind you about the Lord Jesus, and I want to remind you the one we're fighting for and standing up for. Many times when people go overseas to war, they get PS, uh, uh, post-traumatic stress disorder. That's why I have my notes. It's like, okay, what are those things? Uh, Truth be told, I do have a little foggy memory. Uh, I had some buddies come over, and they were going to move some stuff before the winter. And it was an old air air conditioner that was sitting outside. And I said, can you move that refrigerator? (laughs) Like, what are you talking about? PTSD. One of the things they noticed about men who have served overseas and women who have fought is that memory problems are some of the most shared things that they have. There's a lot of stress in what goes. The first thing that goes is memory. So today I want to remind you, in the stress of battle, and when it comes to standing for the truth, that we don't forget about the main person and the main passage. Today we'll be in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, please. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. One man was writing about this passage. He said, I was studying it. It was like an electrical eel was shocking me. I think about this passage often because we know it well, therefore I like to preach it because there's always insights and and insight into Scripture that maybe we don't know when we just heard it preached last or with a cursory study. This passage to me reminds me of uh, Spurgeon when he was looking at different passages to preach. And it was like this passage would shout to him, preach me, preach me. Don't preach those other passages, preach me. And so that's what I feel like when it comes to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Matter of fact, if you're a good theologian, you should take your Bibles and just open it like that, and it should automatically go to 1 Corinthians 15. (laughs) Matter of fact, my Bible did that because I just put a crease in it about five minutes ago just to make sure it would open. No, but seriously, this is one of those passages where you say, Essential truth, important truth, good to be reminded of. Because when we fight, sometimes we don't remember things that we should. And it would be a shame to forget the Lord Jesus in the middle of the fight. Well, background information, Corinth had a lot of problems. Chapter 14, they had problems with worship. And now they have problems with doctrine. If you look at verse 12, this is the verse that unlocks all of chapter 15 in 1 Corinthians. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, 
How can some of you say there is no resurrection from the dead? And so this whole chapter is about that theme of resurrection. Of course, we'll talk about Jesus' resurrection, but this is our resurrection, that our bodies will be resurrected. So let me do this for an outline today. Let me give you eight questions designed to remind you of the most important person, the one we're fighting for, so that when you're at a battle and you're getting stressed out, the last thing you remember is Jesus. We don't want that to happen. So eight questions that might be hard for us to remember if we're in a fight. And so I hope this passage comes to mind when we're in that fight. Number one, question one, do you consider the gospel as of first importance? Do you think it's the most important thing? I mean, everything in the Bible is important, right? Is there anything that's not important? Song of Solomon important? Ecclesiastes important? Hezekiah important? Second Maccabees important? I'm trying to keep you awake. Who gets the four o'clock slot? (laughs) Just whatever slot they give you, just complain, that's all. I got the nine o'clock slot last night. But seriously, uh, everything in the Bible is important. It's breathed out by God, right? That's 2 Timothy. But there's something that's the most important. And Paul says, do you see, in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3, the most important thing in all the Bible. For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ the Messiah died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Now, some will say, see, it's first importance. That's, that means only in the Greek that that's what Paul said first when he got to a city. I don't think that's the case, but even if that was the case, the first thing is the most important thing. And so when Paul goes to a city, he probably, as one man's city, asks where the jail is because he knows he'll be there soon. And then where's the synagogue? And then he has a message for those in the synagogue about Christ Jesus, the God-man. And this is of first importance. And I think sometimes when we fight, we forget this. True or false? For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. True or false? I hope you say true, right? Because that's from 2 Corinthians 10. True or false? We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, authorities, cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. I think you'll say true because that's Ephesians chapter 6. So we need to be careful that... We don't forget the most important thing in the middle of all this. Maybe I could ask you this question. When's the last time you read a book about Jesus? I remember when I was with Sinclair Ferguson in the car in Florida, and he asked me about what was going on in my life. This was years ago, and I said, well, I've written a couple books. And he said, oh, what's the topic? And I said, Jesus. And he said, they'll never sell. (laughs) By the way, 10 years later, he's right. I got stacks of them at home. (laughs) And it's not just because of my writing skills or lack thereof. It's the topic. We're pragmatists. How to overcome anxiety. How to have a better marriage. How to do this, how to do that, how to do the other. And they're all probably important, but they're not of first importance. I regularly say to myself, when's the last time you read a book about Jesus? And then I go buy one and I'm reading books about Jesus regularly and often. Speaking of Sinclair Ferguson, he said... Is it obvious to me, you ask yourself this question, 
and of engrossing concern that the chief focus, the dominant note in the sermons I preach or hear is Jesus Christ and him crucified? Or is the dominant emphasis focused somewhere else, perhaps on how to overcome sin or how to live the Christian life or on the benefits received by the gospel? Ferguson, all are legitimate emphasis in their place, but that place is never center stage. Convicting. Not even just the benefits of Jesus, justification, forgiveness, reconciliation, propitiation, but Jesus himself. John Newton, when he was 65, he was writing to another pastor, and he said, the older I grow, the more I'm drawn to preach much concerning the person of the Lord Jesus. There are other truths important in their places, but unless beheld through the medium of the cross, they have but faint effect. I don't think this conference is pushing for you to only study CRT. But somehow, if that's what you're doing, may I encourage you to not just only study CRT, but to study the Lord Jesus as well. You know what it's like when you first get saved? Maybe you were a Mormon, and you get saved out of Mormonism. What do you study? Well, back in my day, it was Kingdom of the Cults by Walter Martin, and you're all into cults, and what about Mormonism? You came out of Catholicism, so what do you study? All the anti-Catholicism stuff? Oh, you came out of a bunch of CRT stuff and racism and et cetera, et cetera, and so what do you study? Well, I'm going to try to remind you, fine, study that, but don't forget who the Lord is. And in particular, when you read the Bible, maybe you have a Bible program, but what are you drawn to toward? Lots of people say, well, I love to study Romans. Great. I love to study Galatians. Great. But might I remind you to regularly read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? Very, very important. J.I. Packer said, I stress the need for constant meditation on the four Gospels over and above the rest of our Bible reading. Some Christians seem to prefer the epistles as if this were a mark of growing up spiritually. But really, Packer said, this attitude is a very bad sign, suggesting that we are more interested in theological notions than in fellowship with the Lord Jesus in person. We should think, rather, of the theology of the epistles as preparing our hearts to understand better the disciple relationship with Christ that is set forth in the Gospels. And then he ends by saying, and we should never let ourselves forget that the four Gospels are, as often and rightly been said, the most wonderful books on earth. I have a radio show uh, that I've done the last 13 years called No Compromise Radio. And 13 years ago, I was younger, I was a fighter, and so I did not want to compromise. No Compromise Radio. Always biblical, always provocative, always in that order. That was my slogan at the time. Kind of sounds dumb now, but whatever. Um, did I tell you I almost died? Uh, but the show has matured, I think, as I've been wanting to mature. So now I say it's no compromise radio for this reason, because we regularly talk about the one who never compromised. Can you imagine there was a man on earth who said, I always do what's pleasing to the Father? It's the Lord Jesus. And you know, at the cross, there were no attributes of God compromised. Holiness, justice, wrath, love, grace. And so if you tune into No Compromise Radio, and I'm attacking everybody and everyone, that was 3,000 shows ago. But now, if you tune in, Lord willing, it's about the person and work of Jesus, because I don't want to forget him. 
That's what this is all about, is the Lord Jesus. Question two. In the middle of a battle, we want to make sure we're thinking rightly. Not only should you consider the gospel of first importance, but do you gospel the gospel? Uh, do you gospel the gospel? Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. I'll read with a little, I'll, I'll transla- translate as I would read. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel. I gospeled to you. There's the word, preach the word that Virgil said in 2 Timothy. That's not the word here. It's not to herald, but it's to gospel. I gospel the gospel, by which, verse 2, you are being saved. If you hold fast the word, I gospel to you, unless you believe in vain. What Paul says, I've got message that's of good news, content. We'll talk about that in the next point. But in delivery as well. I'm gospeling the gospel. I have good news, and I tell it in a good news fashion. William Tyndale, who lost his life translating the Bible into English, said, the word gospel signifies good, merry, glad, and joyful tidings that make a man's heart glad and make him sing, dance, and leap for joy. By the way, we're having our church Christmas party this coming Friday, and uh, you don't do this when you're a new pastor, Andy, but now that I've been around for 24 years of the church and I've almost died, I decided (laughs) to hire a 12 to 15-piece big band to come at our church uh, and play there, and uh, if a little dancing breaks out, uh, I'll be in the center of it, swing dancing with my wife. (laughs) Don't tell our bishop. We have good news, and we ought to tell it in a good news fashion. As I tell my children, do you know what? I think you probably should send a missionary to your face. And they're like, oh, okay, now I get it. And what Paul is doing here, it's almost like when you have good news proclaimed. The the herald runs up. he, He sees what's going on at the front lines of the battle. He comes back to the general, and he says, we're winning. Allied victory. As S. Lewis Johnson used to say, Ronald Reagan won the presidency. It's a boy. It's a girl. Do you know that in my preaching classes, I have to teach my students how to smile? I have two things that wherever I go around the country or the world, and I teach my preaching classes. Number one, what's the first one, Andy? Preach Christ. Okay, I know you're tired. You put together the conference. Number two, smile. We have good news, and it's to be delivered with a good news fashion. Luther said the word is a Greek word, and it means good message, good tidings, which one sings and tells with gladness, just like with Tyndale. God receives you as ungodly. That's amazing. That's Romans chapter 4. We don't like to talk that way, but that's what it is. He receives you as sinner. No preparation, no warrant for salvation, that you have to do all these things as an unbeliever. And so when we begin to preach the gospel, I think, kind of tied into last night, where the social justice gospel is only law, so they're just crabby or arrogant. And now for us, we have good news, and I want to tell it in an appealing way. I have to teach the men to smile, and so you can just go on YouTube, how to smile. Basically, you take your tongue, you stick it to the roof of your mouth, and crack your, your show your teeth, and it... Feels funny, but it looks great. (laughs) I'm not happy, but I'm teaching you a lesson. 
smiling when we're preaching the good news, right? This is back to Spurgeon's uh, exhortation to his students. Uh, Man, when you talk about the joys of heaven and the Lord Jesus, let your face shine like the sun. And when you're talking about hell, your normal everyday face will do. (laughs) I want you to know, dear congregation, there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. It just, it messes it up. Yes, the word, of course, is still powerful. But Paul says, I'm gospeling the gospel. I'm not monotoning the gospel. I'm not being opposite of what the gospel is. The man that took over for Spurgeon, Archibald Brown, said, the gospel is a fact, therefore tell it simply. It's a joyful fact, therefore tell it cheerfully. I mean, some pastors I, I know, big shot pastors, and I'm thinking, man, the guy's mad at me or something. I mean, he's just going to slaughter me again today. Did I do something to him? And he's stern and mad. We have good news. It's to be delivered in a good news fashion. You know, you go see your baby, he or she's six months old, and you walk over in the morning, and what kind of face do you have? I'll tell you what kind of face it is. Hi, baby. Hi, son. It's just the open face, right? You have three faces. The face you have when they're going to bury you. (laughs) The mad face that lots of preachers do. open face may the Lord bless you and keep you may the Lord make his face to shine upon you it's a face of acceptance knowing all my sins knowing what I do as a pastor even sinfully and the Lord accepts me and continues to accept me I think that's good news by definition by content and by delivery You gospel the gospel. By the way, whenever anybody on a side note says you need to live the gospel, that's really bad theology. Live the gospel. How are you doing? Living the gospel. There's only one person that lived the gospel, and he told everybody else, don't live the gospel, proclaim the gospel. Right? You know, people write the books. Um, well, you know what? There's only um, you in terms of the Bible's only going to be, you're the only Bible people are going to read. And I'm like, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Mike. Uh, Is that the time I was driving to the marriage conference that I was teaching with my wife and got in an argument with her? Was it that time or the other time? You don't live the gospel, you proclaim the gospel. And so don't buy into this whole issue where you just do this friendship evangelism or live the gospel. Number three, question three, is the gospel you preach good news? Is the gospel you preach good news? Now, I didn't come up with it, but I like the saying. You take law, do. Do this and live. You've got gospel. This is what God has done in Christ Jesus for sinners. See, I'm trying to smile there. Physician, heal yourself. And when you put them together, you get kind of a little bit of law, and you get a little bit of gospel, and you combine them, and you don't get law or gospel. What do you get? Gospel. And it's bad. And so let's talk a little bit about law and gospel, making sure that when you give the sermon, when you preach evangelistically, when you're teaching your children, when you're teaching the Bible study, that you don't confuse the two. 
And I think deep down you could see this underneath all the CRT stuff because that's exactly what they do. They're confusing law and gospel. And if I think there's a pandemic in this world today, theological pandemic, it would be confusing law and gospel. Confusing things like what do we do with the law? How do we preach the law? Are we under the law today? Etc. So let's talk about that for a little bit. First Corinthians 15, verse 1. Now I to remind you, brothers, of the gospel, good news. I preach to you which you received in which you stand, and by which the gospel you are being saved, by, and by which, which that is the gospel, you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. And then he gives what that good news is, this great salvation purchased by Jesus. In verse 3 and 4, Christ died for our sins. He was buried. He was raised on the third day. I found an article that showed all the modifiers for the word gospel. Listen to some of them. It's really neat. The gospel of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel of his son, the gospel of the grace of God, the gospel of the kingdom, the gospel of peace, the gospel of uh, the everlasting gospel, the gospel of the glory of Christ. But I noticed what's not on there, the social justice gospel, the CRT gospel, the white gospel. I didn't know, by the way, where's Virgil, that there's black joy? That's amazing. You tied that into the wine thing last night? That's pretty good. We have white wine. There's no black wine. Uh, Merlot, though, I think is from a French word, blackbird, so it's very dark, right? Okay, there you go. Came to a Bible conference and a winology came out of it. I'm going to be judged on my righteousness or based on someone else's righteousness. And here we have this good news that Jesus Christ, the eternal son, adds human nature so that he might be our representative. And every time the law said to do something, he did it perfectly. He did it entirely. He did it exactly. He did it perpetually. And now he also dies for all my sins when I broke the law. And the gospel is about Jesus. And there are so many false gospels these days. Did you know 82% of Americans think this is the gospel or this is true? God helps those that help themselves. Can you imagine that? How are you doing on that, by the way? That's basically back to medieval times before the Reformation. They had a slogan, God will not deny his grace to those who do what lies within their power. Let me tell you what the gospel isn't. The gospel isn't be like Jesus. The gospel isn't be nice. The gospel is not be a better you. The gospel is not for spiritual laws. The gospel is not have purpose in your life, have a relationship with God, have your best life now. None of those are the gospels. Be baptized isn't the gospel. Be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Speak in tongues. Say the sinner's prayer. Fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man. Make Jesus your Lord. Have a personal relationship with Jesus. Decide for Christ. Let go and let God. What would Jesus do? Those aren't the gospels. But they do take my breath away when you say it that fast. I'll tell you this. The gospel isn't love God and love your neighbor. Strictly speaking, the gospel isn't even repent and believe. Oh, you say, well, I don't know about that. Herman Bavink said, indeed, strictly speaking, there are no demands and conditions in the gospel, but only promises and gifts. Because the law is not good news, 
unless you can perfectly obey it. The gospel is about the Lord Jesus. How the Bible reveals to us about the Father and the Son and the Spirit and what they have done for us and the blessings that they offer us with no conditions. When I was uh, in Dublin with my wife 15 years ago, we were in this big square, Dublin, Ireland, and uh, I was there for a really re, you know, spiritual reason. I'm thinking I was there in uh, Ireland, and U2 was big back in those days, and I thought, Bono has some cool glasses. I need to get me some Bono glasses in downtown Dublin. <clears throat> I, saw, I saw U2 in 1982, and Bono asked me to get on stage with him and sing Neil Young's Southern Man. So see, I've got this Bono thing going on. I can't sing. I told him no. I'm not going to get up and sing with Bono. But I wanted his glasses. And so I'm there to get the glasses. And there's this guy standing on a, a board, a box rather, and he's preaching. Repent. Turn or burn. The end times are coming. Be reconciled to God. And I thought, with this guy's courage and my theological acumen, we can go a long way. <laughs> So I kind of just nicely approached and I said, I appreciate your courage, brother, but don't forget to tell him about the Lord Jesus' good news. And so I walked away and I could hear him start to say, and Jesus Christ is the greatest Savior. And he came to live for you, dear girl. He lived, he died for your sins. He was raised from the dead and he's coming back. And I didn't do this with my body, but my mind did it with my body. Yes! <laughs> It's a proclamation of good news. There's a response to the good news. Believe, repent, that's true. Rest, receive. But the good news is about who Jesus is. People say, well, what's, don't you ever talk about the need for the gospel? Sin and judgment? Yes. Don't you talk about how you receive the gospel? Yes. Faith? Don't you talk about, well, there's fruit to the gospel, right? And evidence to the gospel. And, you know, once you're justified, you're sanctified as well. Yes, we talk about those things. Well, what if you reject the gospel? Don't you talk about that? And there's, there's damnation and hell and wrath. Yes, that's true. But those in and of themselves are not the gospel. The gospel is about what Jesus Christ has done. You want to talk about the Father and the Spirit? That's fine, too. Remember what Machen said in 1923? Dear Pastor, give them the triumphant indicatives. What God has done for them in Christ Jesus. The law says, do this and live. The gospel says, this is what Jesus Christ has done in, on behalf of sinners. Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law and to do them. That's the law. The gospel is sins can be washed, forgiven, pardoned, not just for your past sins, but your future sins. And God offers you this without any works, without any merit, without anything that you offer, and you only offer your sin anyway. Here's what's happening in evangelicalism these days. If you preach the free grace gospel, if you have a, an offer to come and buy food without price, people are going to take advantage of it and they're going to run around like crazy people. 
And so let's figure out a way to say there's an initial justification and a final justification. Initial justification by what Jesus did, and now do you have enough works for final justification? Because people are afraid that Christians are going to misuse the grace of God. I want everyone here to work through this in their mind, that there's a difference between your works being the ground of your salvation, the standing of your salvation, and the fruit are evidence. The ground of your salvation has to do with Jesus and Jesus alone. The fruit and evidence, well, that's different. Of course, good works follow your union with Christ, but they are fruit and they are evidence. There are people now that are trying to say, to get that final justification, we want to make sure you run well and you have to obey and you have to do these things. They're making your future justification grounded upon what you do. When Paul said there's now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus, it was conclusive and final, as Rick Phillips said. How much works must I do to warrant salvation? That's a bad question to ask. It'd be much better to ask the question, I should respond with gratitude and do these works because of God's unconditional favor toward me. Well, I like little quizzes, so let me give you a quiz. I'm going to give you a quote by somebody famous. You tell me if it's good news or not. There's law, there's gospel, there's do, there's done, there's what God requires, which is good and right, his law, but we're going to need somebody who can keep that law and then die for our law Breaking. I'm going to give you a quote. You tell me if it's good news or not. Sincere obedience to God in Christ is a condition of our continuance in a state of justification or of our not losing it. Good news or not. See, I didn't want to tell you who it is because if I tell you who it is, you're going to go, oh, I can't believe Abendroth because this person said it. But you congregation have admitted that's bad news and that's by someone who many people extol, except John Owen wrote a whole book about, against, that's Richard Baxter. Richard Baxter said, as to question, therefore, whether justification be losable and pardon reversible, I answer that the grant of them in the covenant is unalterable, but man's will in itself is mutable, and if he should cease believing by apostasy and the condition fail, he would lose his right and be unjustified. Now, see, I get it why people like Baxter. Because I understand, remember, Baxter sees Cromwell's soldiers as he was a chaplain for Cromwell's army. And he sees them say, I'm a Christian, and they're with prostitutes. So instead of saying, you know what? Lawlessness needs to be approached with Jesus as the cure, as does antinomian, uh, as does legalism. Instead, he puts these conditions. And he's taking the ground of your salvation, Jesus' work, and making it now your works, your fruit, what you do. Benjamin Keach critiqued doc, uh, um, uh, the doctrine of Baxter, and he said... I cannot see but that the doctrine some men strive to promote is little better than popery in new dress. Nay, one of the worst branches of it too shall any who pretend to be true preachers of the gospel go about to mix their own works or their sincere obedience with Christ's righteousness. In seminary, I had to read the Reformed, ba Reformed, Reformed Baxter, uh, the Reformed Pastor. You probably had to read it. And by the way, if you want a guilt trip for a pastor, have them read that. 
because he had to go around to all the people in Kidderminster, England, to make sure they were still obeying, still doing the things, because if they weren't, they were going to lose their justification. How would you, dear pastor, dear pastor, other people here that are pastoring, think, you know what, I've got to keep everybody on the straight and narrow. I said to the Banner of Truth people, I love your books. I love what you've published. I, I love everything about it, but volume five of John Owen is all about Richard Baxter and how he had the wrong view of justification. I mean, it's one thing if you've got the wrong view of eschatology, but on justification, on sola fide, you don't get it right. And I said, so I just wish you'd stop publishing that and don't call it the Reformed pastor because he's not Reformed. It's papacy. Okay, we're not all, and, and in, thir- in 15 minutes, I'm just going to leave Andy and fly away, and I just throw the hand grenades out and then leave. This is just perfect. If you think that was controversial, I'm going to ask you this question. Is this good news? How can a person be right with God? The stunning Christian answer is sola fide, faith alone. But be sure you hear this carefully and precisely. He says, right with God by faith alone, not attain heaven by faith alone. There are other conditions for attaining heaven, but no others for entering a right relationship to God. Good news or bad news? Now, some people say things that are wrong, and that doesn't mean everything they've ever said is wrong. I mean, otherwise, why would you even listen to me, right? Or any pastor. But when John Piper writes that, he is categorically wrong. He's absolutely wrong. The justification that justifies you at the beginning is the justification that will justify you at the end. He is confusing the ground of salvation, the work of Jesus, and the fruit of salvation. Who could ever meet the conditions for heaven besides Jesus and his perfect righteousness? There are no conditions. Justification is complete and irrevocable by grace through faith apart from works. And at the same time, there is a future reward according to the works, said John Murray. But it doesn't give you any standing. I know one man who writes, is being declared righteous in God's eyes inadequate to attain heaven? Do I need more righteousness than Christ's righteousness to attain heaven? Did Christ perfectly keep the law? And did he, as representative, have the ability to grant us his perfect law-keeping? Does faith unite us to Christ? Can justification, once declared, be revoked? And again, I quote another Baptist who said, Once we are justified, we need not inquire how a man is justified after he is justified. I think that quote has some justification to it. By the way, it sure got quiet in here all of a sudden. Majin said, if Christ provides only part of our salvation, leaving us to provide the rest, then we are still hopeless under the load of sin. Now, see, people are afraid because if you just preach the grace of God, well, then we can just sin. No, no, we're going to preach the grace of God because the paradigm is guilt, grace, and what's the third G? Gratitude. So we don't want to disobey. There's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. So when I read someone say, I won't say who it is. Let me give you the quote again. By the way, it's not good news because these are none, none of these are good news. They're all my illustrations of bad news. This man said, those who are children are also heirs. 
But this inheritance is also conditioned upon obedience. Tom Schreiner, Romans chapter 8. That's not good news, dear friend. Good men make bad decisions. I love Doug Moo, his commentary. But he said, verses 12 through 13 of Romans 8, cap off this proclamation of life in Christ by reminding us that God's gift of eternal life does not cancel the complementary truth that only by progressing in holiness will that eternal life be attained. You attain eternal life on the back of another because Jesus perfectly obeyed the law. He's a representative. Remember Job chapter 9? Job's like, oh, if only I had a mediator, an umpire, Here's thrice holy God. Here's man. I need somebody to be in the middle. You ever seen two boxers and they're doing some low blows and other things and the referee gets in between the two and what does he say to them? You're like, boxing? We know MMA, but we don't know boxing. (laughs) Say, break it up. And he splits them. This is the idea of Job chapter 9. We need a mediator. Someone who can mediate between God and man. Oh, he's going to have to be truly man to be our representative and he's going to have to be truly God for such a great atonement. The ground of your salvation is the Lord Jesus' work. That's the gospel. And then you respond with, oh, I'd like to love God and love my neighbor. But how much do I have to love God and love neighbor to then attain heaven? You don't. You say, I know people are going to misuse that. They're going to abuse it. That's true, but I'm not going to play around the gospel because even when Romans 6 comes along, shall we sin that grace might abound? Answer? Well, you could, but you shouldn't. You, dear Christian, have free forgiveness for all your sins, all on the account and for the sake of Christ. Did you know it was Rome that took away assurance? Did you know that was one of the big issues of the Reformation? Bondage of the will, that's true. Sola fide, true. But assurance, it's a sin to have assurance. By the way, why do we have communion regularly and often? Most times people think, you know what? Communion these days, let's say the elements were put there. The pastors turn it into a law sermon. Did you live up to your calling this last week? Have you confessed all your sins? Are you worthy to come? Now, there's some law in the Lord's Supper, right? We want to examine ourselves. That's true. But the bulk of it is, what did Jesus say? Do this in remembrance of your sins. No, do this in remembrance of me. And we're going to remember the Lord Jesus. And he says, you know what? Here's a service, a worship service. Now, when I think worship service, I think this. I'm there to serve. I get there early, I want to say hi, I want to greet people, I want to give, I want to sing, I want to pray, I want to listen to the sermon, or preach the sermon. I'm serving in the worship service. Good, but that's not the main service. You know, God is serving you. He's serving you His Word, that's all about the Lord Jesus, and He's serving you the Lord's Supper, which says it's all done, it's all finished. Come as you are, yes. Be sorry for your sins, ask for forgiveness, repent of those sins. That's all true. But it's the Lord serving you. You know, during COVID, we had those dumb little packet things. Had some kind of little, I don't know, some kind of biscuit and some Welch's in there or something. I said once to our congregation, these are like the cheesiest things I've ever seen in my life. 
And to spite the government, we're going to go back to the common cup. No, just kidding. I said, you know what? This is the cheesiest thing. But can you imagine if Jesus gave you this and said, you know what? I just want you to take of that bread and take of that juice or that wine. And I want you to remember me. I did it all. You know what I would do? I'd probably frame that thing. (laughs) Jesus is serving me. It's done. Like, what fool would want to take care of that kind of grace? Yeah, only a fool, and lots of times we do that, but that does not negate it. And so when you hear people say, this is what you have to do to attain final salvation, it's been done by the Lord Jesus. Maybe with good intentions, but they are trying to manipulate you. The ground of your salvation, the foundation of your salvation is Jesus alone. Because a thrice holy God is going to obliterate any kind of sin like a nuclear winter that we've never seen. So I need some kind of shield. I need somebody else to exhaust the wrath of God that's going to come for me. So I can't say, well, I've got some good works towards the end and I'm progressing. It is true. You're saved by faith alone and that faith won't be alone. That's all true, but that's not my point today. My point today is don't let the law sneak into the gospel because then you're going to be running on the treadmill forever. No wonder why regularly the response to the gospel is rest. Isn't that good? Rest. Believe and you'll be saved. One man said, It is an exercised and disquieted Christian who does not distinctly know the difference between law and gospel. He cannot attain to solid tranquility or establish comfort of soul. Machen, those who have been saved by the Lord Jesus not only are righteous in the sight of God, but beyond the possibility of becoming unrighteous. All right. Well, if you're at home, what you do is you say he has eight points. It's been 45 minutes. uh, And so how many more do we have? I have another 45 minutes. But no, that's not true because the pastor always goes much faster in his last points. So that's what I'm going to do now. Oh, I've only got through three points. Okay, well, who's the next guy? Who's up after me? Ryan? Okay, I'm going to finish up right now. Why did I just do say that? The guy. Can somebody give me a ride to Grand Central? Quit laughing. You've got to attain your eternal justification. Is the gospel you preach God-centered? I'll be very quick here. Is it God-centered? If you look at the passage in, look at 1 Corinthians 15, 3. Christ died. He was buried. He was raised. They even changed a passive verb. Instead of they buried him, it was changed to he was buried. And he was raised. Verse 5, he appeared. Paul got saved 25 years early on the Damascus Road. He never forgot it, and everything was about who God is. Here's what we see in Christian testimonies today. God did this. He did that to me. He did this for me. Uh, But then it turns into, you know what, I used to do a lot of drugs, and then I did this, and then I did that. I like to say to people who I'm discipling, oh, could you give me your Christian testimony? 60 seconds. Go. And at 55, they're still talking about their sin. 
Okay, I want to have them talk about their sin, but now let's get to the Savior, right? And for Paul, the gospel was about who God was in Christ Jesus. God justifying the wicked. Uh, Incidentally, if you are ever going to be baptized, maybe you haven't been baptized and you think, yeah, but what am I going to say in the baptismal font, I don't have an exciting testimony. I'm not a terrorist or a drug addict, or I'm not a prostitute or anything like that. Well, if you talk about who Jesus is, that's pretty exciting. By the way, why do people clap during testimonies of baptism uh, for the drug addict who got saved, but never for the 15-year-old homeschool girl? <laughs> Humanly speaking, it's a lot harder to get saved from self-righteousness than it is unrighteousness, but that's another story. That sounds like enough amens that you guys get it. Okay, next question. Question five. Do you preach the gospel as an historical event? As a historical event. He buried, raised. This is history. If you're like Machen, he would say all theology is history. If you go to Israel with me, we just had to cancel a trip, but if you go another time, my favorite thing in all of Israel maybe besides the Sea of Galilee is all the Catholic churches we go to. No, my favorite thing is when you go by the Mediterranean Sea, there's a little thing here and it talks about Pontius Pilate. And I love that, that it talks about Pontius Pilate. I think that's in a creed of ours, is it not? The Apostles' Creed suffered under what? Pontius Pilate, linking everything to history. This is real. If Buddha doesn't exist, Buddhism still can. If Muhammad doesn't exist, Islam still can. This is a historical religion. No wonder Paul uh, declared to Festus, for the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly, for this has not been done in a corner. Question six, does the gospel you preach include penalty substitution? Christ died for our sins. That is penalty substitution. Okay, think about it. We can't get through a death penalty legislation. Capital punishment. Jesus died as a death penalty capital punishment. There's a penalty for sin. Not for his own sin, but for ours. God so shows his love for us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The feminists hate this because basically, you know what, this is some kind of assuaging male domination and all these other things. It's just horrible. Remember even that wonderful song. They had to try to change that song uh, because the... Liberals did not like it. Remember the song that changed the lyrics? And on that cross, when Jesus died, the love of God was magnified. And the author said, no, I will not let you change that because it's the wrath of God was satisfied. Uh, The First Presbyterian Church liberal pastor, Chris Joyner, said, that lyric comes close to saying that God killed Jesus. The cross is not an instrument of God's wrath. Two more questions. Number seven, do you proclaim the gospel as scriptural? You see that twice. Verse three, according with the scripture, according to the scriptures. Verse four, in accordance with the scriptures. When Paul wants you to know exact quote, he says, the scripture says, particularly, but if it's generally speaking, the scriptures say, he's talking about a bunch of different scriptures. And that's what he says here, probably Psalm 16, Psalm 110. And then finally, does the gospel that you proclaim include the resurrection? 
It's not good news without the resurrection. I have a radio show. Sometimes I'll ask my studio guest, uh, could you please give, praise the gospel to the people that are listening? And sometimes they talk about, you know, the Lord Jesus and, and his death and his life. And I'm waiting for the resurrection. So sometimes I just have been in my studio and I just go like this. And they're like, oh, oh, yeah, and he was raised from the dead. That's right. Because God, the Father raised him, the Son raised himself, the Spirit raised him. But here he's raised from the dead as the work was accomplished and the sacrifice was accepted. You've got to have that in there. I love the story when Karl Barth comes over to the United States, Swiss theologian, and he comes over. Everybody's falling down before Barth, falling down before Barth. Christianity Today is there. Kind of like, you know, these days it'd be CNN and uh, something else. But now we have Christianity Today. And Carl Henry was the person working for them. Some of you recognize his name. And Henry asked Bart the question because he wanted to tell everybody that Bart was a liberal, not even a Christian. And he said to Bart, if we take one of these cameras here from UPI, AP, uh, Christianity Today, and we were putting it in the tomb, what would we see there? And Bart said... To himself, I know that I've been had. So he said, where are you from again? Who do you represent? Henry said, Christianity today. And Bart said, no, you mean Christianity yesterday. Because Jesus never bodily rose. And so for us, it's a centerpiece. Just get used to saying regularly, he lived, he died, and he was raised. The risen Savior. God raised him from the dead. Well, today I just had the privilege of reminding you about the most important thing, and that's the Lord Jesus. And I would love for you to continue promoting this great Lord. Adoniram Judson came back from the missionary field, and uh, he went to go speak to a bunch of pastors. Now, when I meet missionaries, I like to say, what's the weirdest food you ever eat? Did you get bit by a snake? My friends and missionaries had AK-47s put to his head. I said, well, what do you do when you go to a certain restaurant? He said, well, I went to this one restaurant. There was no menus, and it's like out in the middle of nowhere, and there's dogs running around and kids and everything. And a dog comes up, and I pet that dog. That's what I chose for the menu. So they took that dog, killed the dog, and fed him that dog. And I'm like, wow. Good thing a kid didn't come over first. <laughs> I want to hear stories like that, snakes and stuff. And Justin got up to those pastors. He finally came home after all those years and said, I'm going to talk to you about the Lord Jesus, the risen Savior. And they said, we expected better stories. And he said, there's no greater story than the Lord Jesus. And by the way, if you think there's a better story, you needed the message tonight. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you for the Lord Jesus. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.